So you're all very welcome to this special edition of CV Talks uh, podcast by Silver Cloud by Amwell. My name is Dr. Dan Duffy and I'm a digital health scientist here at Silver Cloud by Amwell. And I'm joined today for Men's Mental Health Awareness Month uh, by Greg and Ruan. So today we're going to have a chat a little bit about men's mental health, the experience of being a man in society and what that means and how it can impact on your mental health. And I'm going to be sharing my experiences today as well, which is a little bit different from our normal podcast. So I'd love to hand you over to introduce my lovely guests. So Ruan, would you like to kick us off? Just tell us a little bit about your background, your experience and why you're here today. Yeah, so my name is Ruana Creadon. I work with Shoutout. We're an LGBT charity working to try and improve life for LGBT young people in particular through education. So we're trying to make more inclusive environments in lots of different spaces for LGBT young people, for their peers, LGBT people in the workplace and the broader LGBT community. I suppose I got involved with Shoutout because I had a really awful time in school growing up LGBT+. Things got better once I left school, but it was something that really impacted my mental health growing up and something that I really struggled with as I kind of went on my journey and found out different identities um, and kind of came out in different ways. I now identify as trans. I'm a trans man. So I guess it gives me maybe a slightly different experience or different perspective around mental health and masculinity as well. And I love talking about those experiences and perspectives. Um, it's something I think that is a real positive of being trans, being able to have those different insights or that different view of things. Thank you very much, Rowan. So Greg, how about yourself? Uh, my name is Greg. I'm a director and a photographer from Dublin. Um, my own experience of mental health, I think um, growing up in Ireland, I'm 34, so like growing up with that particular history in Ireland, uh, there was kind of a hesitancy to engage with mental health, um, whether that was societal or personal, but my, my journey with mental health kind of began in earnest, maybe five or six years ago, where I started like seeking actual counselling, actual treatment. Um, unfortunately, it took maybe a crisis point to get me there. Uh, looking back, I think there was an awareness that my mental health was not always good, wasn't always healthy, wasn't it? Did, and was in need of some uh, intervention. But I guess it took a long time for me to get there. Thank you very much for sharing that. So. Similar to both of you, uh, I've also had experience with the mental health system. Um, I am a gay male, I am 32. Um, so similar to you, Greg, growing up in that, you know, that, that, that history of Ireland and what it was like coming out, coming to recognize that identity in myself and, you know, dealing with that, coming to terms with that and what it was like to come out. So I guess I can, I can, I can share there too. So let's just kick into it. And I want to ask you, it seems very on the nose, but when you think of mental health and men's mental health specifically, what are the first things that come to mind? For me, it's being able to operate and function within the society that we're in, really. That's that's kind of it. I find uh, with my own mental health, there's a lot of noise, um, you know, on a, on a day-to-day -day anxiety or depression can be quite overwhelming. And I guess what I would deem like a healthy day is one where you can get up in the morning, you can go about your day uh, without that inner voice that's that's kind of dragging you into a into a darker place. If that makes sense. Okay. What about yourself, Ron? I guess the first thing that usually comes to mind for me is something that we talk about a lot in my work when we're working with parents in particular, mm. and talking about the impact of gender expectations and kind of cultural expectations mm -hmm. from a very early age. 
Very recently, I was kind of chatting to like my niece and she was saying that, oh, like a little boy in her crash was crying and she said, well, boys aren't really supposed to cry. And we have this conversation with parents where it's not something they would say to their own kids, but it's an expectation that they see coming in lots of places from TV and other adults. This expectation that little boys aren't permitted to cry in the same way or have a tantrum in the same way as little girls. Mm -hmm. And this kind of data that suggests that little boys aren't given maybe as much space with those tantrums or those emotional outbursts. So we try and, I suppose, talk to people and we try and think as deeply as we can about the impact of those very early expectations and those very early stereotypes around how boys and young men are expected to express their emotions because it's something that is really reinforced, I think, as you grow up and especially in school systems and adolescence as like your peer judgment and peer expectations come into. So I think for me, that's the thread that sticks out the most. And I think it's really interesting that both of you have kind of hinted to, you know, we're talking about mental health, which in most instances is very, very personable. And even thinking about psychotherapy and, you know, psychological treatments and how that tends to place the emphasis on the individual. But really what you've both said today is that there's a lot of cues that come from the external environment that really impact on how we think, behave and act. And I suppose I can really, I can really relate to that in the sense that, you know, as a gay man and what I'm really struggling with these days is following the old cultural life script. I'm in my 30s. Uh, if I was a heterosexual, I may, I would likely be married by now. I would likely maybe have one or two kids. And it's the constant thing, even in work environments, having to meet new people and network and they say, how's the wife? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> and then that's the thing that I have to come out all over again. And it's all those cultural scripts that are really, you know, playing down on me these days. And I think for me, that emphasizes the societal elements, the expectations that people have on you. So you've kind of both spoken a little bit about it, but in regards to your own mental health and your interactions with the health system, we're all coming at this from different viewpoints. And I imagine we've all interacted in different ways. Greg, you had mentioned, you know, your own experience. So what about you? What's that been like for you interacting with the health system? I'm privileged in a way that I have access to it. Like that, exactly. that's definitely something that, that I'm very much aware of. And I think that that was actually something that made me hesitant to engage with it for a long time. Um, I come from a middle-class background. I'm a heterosexual man in this society. It's like, there is, like, personally, there's an awareness that, like, coming from that place of privilege, that I didn't want to take up space or take up a resource that was otherwise, from my, from my opinion, better used elsewhere. So what about you, Rowan? In terms of my own, I suppose, engagement with the system, a lot of it would have been through private resources or private avenues. Um, I would have done like ad hoc starts and stops with different counselling services, especially in college. Mm. And it is I think, one of the good things that's available to people in a lot of higher education spaces. If you're lucky to make it into higher education, you should hopefully have good counselling supports available to you. But it was never really a great fit for me. It was only really in the past few years, especially when I was trying to kind of come to terms with transitioning and what that might look like, that I was able to find a counsellor who was a really good fit. And I had to do all that research around, I suppose, not just a counsellor who was trained and affordable and accessible, but one who would really know their stuff around gender and gender identity and trans identities especially. Mm -hmm. So I found one who was certified by international kind of trans best practices and he's an amazing counsellor in his own respect. But... I guess there's a, there's a thing kind of called minority stress where basically people from marginalized communities 
will anticipate discrimination or rejection. So it's the same for people who are neurodivergent or people who are from migrant backgrounds or minority ethnic backgrounds. You're constantly worried if the professional you're dealing with is going to say the wrong thing or discriminate against you in some way. So there was that extra barrier. Um, but ultimately, I was lucky enough to find a private counsellor who was a really good fit. And likewise, I found a GP who's been really brilliant and who came kind of recommended or came with good trans accreditation or like a good trans awareness. But I do think that like finding a specialised counsellor is something that everybody should do if they need it. Like whether you've got issues around shame or sexuality or stigma or addiction or family, there is so much expertise out there. I think it's really overwhelming to sift through it all. Yes. And I think it's it does take that kind of like almost Tinder dating vibe of trying out a few people. Yeah. But I think that can almost be off-putting to people as well when you're going through those experiences and maybe not having immediate success. Um, so I definitely had a few unsuccessful starts and stops, but I'm really glad that I found somebody who was a great fit. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's really interesting too, because, you know, even thinking about that whole Tinder dating idea of counsellors, I, I think that's a great way of saying it. You know, even if, if you are feeling vulnerable, that can be almost detrimental in a way too, right? Because we know that therapeutic relationship between therapist and client is key to pretty much 40% of the improvements that anybody makes in a therapeutic setting. But if you're a male and you're already dealing with stigma, you're potentially dealing with shame um, and you're at crisis point, you know, and poor interaction with a professional who doesn't understand where you are. And then exactly what you've said about minority stress, when you start dissecting up one group of people that could be men, males, it becomes even more complicated and complex. And we know that men just don't access treatment. It just, it just doesn't happen. I think even from our own data as well, it's looking like 65 to 70% of all of the people who use SiverCloud within Ireland and even more so in the UK and within the wider psychological, even healthcare literature, men do not seek mental health care and they don't get there. You'll often hear guys say, complaining about their sore legs or I've just squatted like 250 kilos and you know, bro, look at my legs, they're so big. And they'll complain about back pain, but they won't talk about what's going on inside or they might equate what's going on inside to the back pain. So when we think about men accessing mental health care, what comes to mind and what do you see as the biggest barriers in that space? We do see certain patterns, I guess, with young people in different types of schools. Yes. Around how ready people might be to share on certain topics or how free people might feel to speak. And I think it does maybe reflect, again, just those kind of like gendered norms and gendered expectations, where oftentimes if we're delivering a workshop in a girls' school, we'll find that there might be a more relaxed culture, there might be a more relaxed atmosphere people feel a bit more free to kind of share their opinion or speak their mind without being scared of being judged. Or there's maybe a, just a bit more talkness, talkativeness in the class. We don't see that as much in boys' schools. There is a little bit more anxiety. There's a little bit more silence. There's a little bit more mockery and judgment. And I do wonder if that kind of, I suppose, socialization or social spaces can make it harder for men to just navigate the pathways of opening up and seeking support. Um, I think it's also sometimes reflected in the demographics of therapeutic professions. I think a lot of counsellors do tend to be female mm. and oftentimes the image of the profession is one that maybe is more female or more feminine. Um, so I don't know, maybe that reflects, you know, the kind of thing where you're more likely to engage with the service if it looks like you or if it looks like your particular demographic or your particular group. 
But what is it about that socialization process for boys and what, like, spell it out for me. What does that look like? And how do, how do you feel that that creates, you know, a lack of engagement or a lack of want of engagement, or it's not even a lack of want of engagement, it's fear of engaging, perhaps shame, stigma. So what does that look like, that socialization process? It has to do with lots of things. Like some people have this idea that there's a male brain and a female brain, but that's absolute nonsense. People's brains are totally elastic and they're molded by how you develop and the people you spend time with growing up and the toys you play with and the games that you play. And Girls, young girls in particular, are often encouraged to play games that maybe are more imagination focused, that maybe have more kind of conversation and storytelling as part of them. This idea of a girl might not be inclined to play with dolls, but she might be given dolls and her peers might be playing particular games that might be more narrative based. Mm. Boys maybe are more likely to be pushed towards physical activities, physical toys, toys that might be more about building or more about logic or more about construction. And again, it's not that boys or girls are inherently better at any particular type of game or more inclined naturally or biologically to any type of toy, but that these patterns might be driven towards them or they might be driven towards these patterns. And that will, I suppose, begin kind of building pathways within the brain. I think the other huge issue that we have that is unique to the Irish context is that we've got something like the highest level of single-sex schooling in Europe. And that's this really unique, strange incubator and microclimate of a very narrow socialization that does not reflect the world that young people are going into. It doesn't reflect the world in which they'll ultimately live their lives, work their jobs, have relationships. And I think it makes it very difficult for people to learn to communicate in different ways. Um, And that environment is particularly rough for LGBT students, particularly where questions of uniform come into play or sports or even just socialization in the school context. You still see it sometimes in schools in Ireland where girls can't wear trousers, girls can't do woodwork, boys can't do home ec. We're limiting young people from a very early age, often within this system. So I think we really need to examine what we can do about that and how it's affecting our young people. And I think that's really interesting because even reflecting on my own experience as a gay male in the Irish school system, um, I think I was absolutely blessed to have found, I I feel like sometimes in school systems, one, uh, we tend to attract one another because we see the same things in one another. Um, But I definitely found another group of gay young people. And that kind of softened the blow when we started coming out in school. And it was quite rare. Like I went to a single sex school. um, It was predominantly middle class. Um, I'm not, I'm not middle class by background. Uh, I'd say I'm kind of working class, but um, already there was like this feeling of I don't belong. And then I was different to all the other boys as well. And, you know, there was a lot of shame coming out, talking to people. But I know for a fact that I had it really well. I had it great in comparison to other people I know in other schools because there was a core group of people there that supported me. And we spoke about things that others wouldn't speak about. We'd ask, how are you? And if somebody said, I'm not doing good today, it was like, why are you not doing good? And we'd talk about it and we sit, we'd sit around at lunchtime, we had a corner and we'd go through our problems, we'd support one another, we'd talk about conversations we were having or not having in some circumstances with our parents about coming out, about how I was sitting at the dinner table and I really wanted to speak to my parents and communicate to them, but I just couldn't. And I think, you know, it's really interesting, the, you know, the whole narrative of pushing people along certain development pathways in schools based on 
what they look like. Oh, th th this person is a girl, this person is a boy, so we should push them along those pathways. So, Greg, what do you think about all that? As a teenager, I hated them. <laughs> I, ha I hated sports. I didn't play, like I, I went to a like, private school in Dublin. Rugby was, you know, it was a big thing. It wasn't a particularly rugby-oriented school. It was quite a small one, but like, it was still this like, rugby is the, you know, monoculture upon which this school exists. Um, and when you don't fit in within that, like I, I played music, that's that's what I like to do. I like to be left alone at times, you know what I mean? It was like an, an arty child. Um, but you see that when it has that, when competition is the primary source of social, socialization and the primary source of like tribalism as well, you see how that trickles down into people in their, in their adult life as well, where, and how difficult it might be to seek help because the notion is if you're in competition with everyone, why are you going to show weakness? When we think about everything that we go through as men, and then it goes back to accessing healthcare, we have all these pressures put on us. So what does that mean from an access perspective in regards to, like, I, I know personally from when I when I, I, I'm actively in therapy, um, similar to Ruan, I was starting and stopping for a while, but I do feel like therapy is like, it's music for the soul. Um, it's really good to have a space. But I know even when I'm standing outside the therapy, like you have to ring the doorbell and you have to announce on the street, you know, who you are, D uh, you know, Dan Duffy here for a 4 p.m. appointment. And I'm sometimes mortified. I'm like standing there and I'm like, people are looking at me and I'm announcing that I'm here and the plaque is on the door. And I feel like, an, once again, I, I then on the street feel like a failure. I make a judgment on myself. And not even from that, it's like, as a man, I'm standing there and I'm constructed to be something in society and I'm trying to push that down always, mm. but it's there. Mm -hmm. So what do those sorts of feelings look like for both of you? And Ruan, I'm really interested to hear about your experience as a trans man as well, because as I said, once we start cutting down this group of men and what it is, everybody has different experiences in there. and we all need to be heard. I think it's funny that as a trans man, sometimes you can find yourself, despite whatever socialization you've had growing up, you can find yourself just falling into patterns of masculinity that might be harmful to you and to others. I would definitely have often been anxious about talking about going to therapy or really reticent about talking about it. And it was only really by following other people's lead about how brave they were talking about their therapy that I felt a bit more open about it. I was lucky that I had a colleague who, when she was kind of joining the team, made it really clear that she needed a certain amount of time, maybe for therapy, or that there was something that was in her calendar on an ongoing basis. And that's now something that we have a standard that if that time is needed, it's something that you can be as open or not mm. as you want to be about what that looks like for you and about what that looks like in your calendars, but that it would always be that protected time. But I wouldn't have felt comfortable speaking about it unless they had. As a trans person, you will maybe fall into those patterns and you might fall into those patterns of, I suppose, whatever gender you identify as, um, whether they may be harmful or positive. Mm. And you might have to, again, kind of push back against them in the same way that a cisgender would, a cisgender person would. And then you're also reckoning with the particular, I suppose, uphill battle they have as being trans. The landscape for trans people in terms of mental health is really bleak. 90% of trans people have considered suicide and 45% of trans people have attempted suicide. 
So we're constantly thinking about that. It's a common experience. It's something that is shared by the community and something that a lot of us don't want for our next generation of trans young people. Um, and it's not helped by the system in which we're trying to medically transition in if that's something that you choose as a trans person. Mm. So similar to how I was asking Rowan there about, you know, spell it out for me. What is it that creates those blockages for heterosexual males to mm. accessing to accessing therapy? What creates those blockages? Why do you think they don't access services? I think it's multifaceted. I think it's fear. It's pride. Um, it's not seeing it. It's it's not seeing it as a as a regular thing in your in your friend groups maybe as well because it's so much easier to to approach something new if you have the context for it. You know, um, I think it's outward pressure, inward pressure. It's society as a whole. I think that there's ways, there's easier ways to cope with it. As someone who has had their own experiences with addiction in the past, and that's like the my quite regular therapy that I'm in at the moment is to do with that. Um, seeing that that was an easier route, but I wasn't. it wasn't even in the conversation of like, this instead of therapy. It was just like, this was, this was just the reality. Yeah. Therapy then became um, a, a way out of it. I think, um, I think access is another, is another major component of it as well. Like, you know, I had access and the means to access it, but if you don't have the means, it's, it can be seen as a luxury. Yeah. Because I imagine, you know, even on health insurance plans, they don't fully cover the costs of, you know, they don't cover the costs of counselling, of psychotherapy, and then there's only so much that they will cover if they do. So, like, you may be paying 40 euro, but if you're, you know, not covered, it's 80, 90, 100. And going back to cost, uh, would you both agree that that is a barrier to accessing treatment or, like, in or healthcare in general for men? I think it is a barrier, but I also, I suppose, do want to acknowledge that, especially in Dublin, from my own experience, there's a lot of therapists who are really generous with their sliding scales and really generous with what they offer to try and get people in the door, um, especially some of the kind of LGBT-specific services. Um, and I also think the system has made it quite difficult for therapists, especially maybe those who might be trainees or those who might be early on in their career. I think it is actually a really challenging landscape economically. So the cost is a huge barrier, um, I think, especially for those who maybe can't even afford a sliding scale fee or a lower cost fee. Um, but also the system is broken in that the professionals who are helping you aren't necessarily making money. The money is maybe going elsewhere or the money is sinking. Nobody necessarily knows where it's going, but it's not necessarily being reflected in a counsellor's salary. Um, I think where we are really broken is the public system mm. um, and especially the public system when it comes to tailored supports. When it comes to the issue of dual diagnosis too, and people who might need supports around addiction and their mental health, um, the public system is failing a lot of people at those intersections. Mm. When it's so heavily kind of monetized as well, uh, and it's difficult for the people not only get like getting therapy, receiving therapy, but giving therapy as well, and the therapist, you're kind of all existing within a system that's kind of eating its own tail and is nothing but cannibalizing itself. What kind of environment? encourages men and their mental health and what kind of things push them into help seeking? I think it is about taking away as many barriers as possible mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes that means offering tailored solutions or means 
making sure that the solutions that are assumed to be available to everybody, like exercise, mm-hmm. actually are available to everyone who needs them. Like the exercise resources that somebody who is, say, middle class and able-bodied might have are different from the resources that somebody who is working class or has a disability might have. Mm-hmm. So we need to make sure that all the solutions that we suggest, like going for a walk or mm-hmm. joining a gym, actually are available to everyone who needs them. And then we also need to make sure that, I suppose, therapeutic solutions and harm reduction solutions are available to specific communities, mm-hmm. that they're delivered by experts or by other people of lived experience, and they're, they're del- that they're informed by those service users' needs. Um, I think one of the amazing services for the queer community in Dublin in particular is Empower, which is a sexual health testing and harm reduction service. It's delivered tailored to the community's needs. It's reaching people in bars and other venues where gay, bisexual and trans men tend to be. Uh, it reaches them on apps and it delivers their services through languages which are predominantly spoken within the community. So not just English, but also Portuguese and Spanish. So that's a really amazing example of a tailored service that is adapting with its community. Um, and that's getting out there ahead of, I suppose, public services. So the charity sector often has to fill those gaps. Um, and I think that that's maybe not an amazing sign of a public system, even though I'm very proud to work in the charity sector. Um, but I think that we are lucky that we've got really creative people working in those sectors and trying to resource and support those communities, even within the music and creative community, mm-hmm. like mining creative minds and yeah, the work that absolutely. they do is really class around yeah. getting to people where they're at. Yeah, exactly. And that's the core tenet of healthcare, right? Or it should be it. It should be what all professionals strive to do is meet people where they are and give care where people are. Finding people like putting up stands and bars when it comes to the LGBTQ community, you know, just making sure that you're reaching people where they can be reached and even in a space. But you had said something there about removing as many barriers as possible. And what would you say would be the biggest barrier to remove uh, for to improve healthcare for all? Not just men. So here we go. Existentialism coming right at you. I think, I suppose maybe within Ireland, even just thinking about the trans community in particular, um, we simply need to do our duty by what's expected of us at an international level. Like we're not meeting the standards that the World Health Organization expects of us. Mm -hmm. That's the same in lots of areas of healthcare, but when it comes to trans people, it's because maybe the funding isn't there, but it's also because the current models that Ireland is operating under are really outdated. Mm. Um, And there's, I suppose, a reluctance or a fear of fixing those because they've been in place a long time and because they're managed by people who've been working in the field for a long time. So I think there's a real need for political courage um, and also to listen to or to have everything driven by patients, service users and people of lived experience. And that's not just for the trans community, but it's for every community, um, especially for minority communities. But even when we think about how young people are treated by public systems and how young people are treated by public services, their voices aren't always heard. It might be parents' voices or clinicians' voices or teachers' voices. But we need to make sure that the voice of whoever the service is for is at the center of that service the whole time. And what about yourself, Greg? Um, Your barrier. Provi- like from a fundamental place, like we, we talk about there's a housing crisis in this country um, and providing like what is fundamental to people's needs here. Um, the conversation around, like particularly in Dublin as well, is like, oh, we've never had it so good in this country at the same time, but we've also got a housing crisis and the homelessness crisis and, and all of this. So 
having having a fundamental con- conversation that doesn't feel like you're having an abusive relationship or like that a that a populist isn't being kind of gaslit by their government being told how good they've have it when demonstrably people are struggling. Um, so yeah, I feel that too because I often feel that people say it's actually okay. You're you're not doing too bad, but like it doesn't feel good on the inside. And it's about reconciling that, I guess. What do you think those generational differences really look like? And where do you think that, you know, where do you think the biggest differences will be with those who are coming up, for want of a better term? If I think about like my parents' generation mm-hmm. and even the mention of, of therapy is almost this like <laughs> frightening concept um, to them because it didn't, it didn't really exist for them. But I guess from kind of 90s TV and things like that, you had this notion of therapy being like, everything's going to be blamed on the parent. Uh, so like, I can see why there's like a fearful, uh, there can be a fearful element uh, there. And that's how therapy was kind of put out into the into the public sphere in many ways um, for me growing up as well. Whereas what I can see, and this is assumptions from, from you know, my perspective is that the generations younger than, than myself the language is there. The language, like the language, has kind of come up in in their teenage years, so it's almost a more natural language for them. Mm-hmm. Um, is there like potential limitations and danger in becoming almost too generalised? The language of of uh, mental health, and that like you hear stories of it being, you know, it's it's just kind of pop culture language now, mm-hmm. um, and that has its own danger. But I think it also has a real benefit to be able to. Put words on your feelings, put words on your emotions. Um, it's it's an access point. Is it perfect? Probably not, but it's uh, it's certainly a lot more beneficial than not having the language whatsoever. When we think about this generation that's coming up, and you know, I, I think it's always horrible when they say that millennials aren't you know aren't the digital generation because we're also on our phones all the time. I'm a millennial. I, every millennial I see on the bus on the street attached to their phones, but the generation coming up, they're getting stuck with that label. But if we're meeting them online, what are some of the dangers you would anticipate of sort of the wild west of apps and what that could mean for mental health care and men's mental health care, even considering they may not be likely to access a, you know, a, a physical resource, but they have a phone at their hands. What about you, Ron? I think it's, I mean, I, I suppose that digital access can be really useful for anybody who might have anxiety about publicly asking, publicly accessing mental health care or asking for support in finding mental health care. So they can be really useful for men in general. For the LGBT community and especially for young LGBT people, a digital solution might be really appealing because for a lot of young LGBT people, they might not feel able to access professional support because it might mean coming out. So they might worry that they'll have to admit to their parents or teachers that they're gay or bi or trans in order to access mental health support or in order to deal with bullying in school. So that's a huge barrier to LGBT young people getting help in the first place because they may be scared to come out for lots of reasons. So a digital solution might be really appealing. And I know myself and other queer friends, we are getting very specific targeted ads on our social media of here's this amazing mental health digital solution. Um, and it's pitched to you by queer people or by visibly queer people or members of the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. So the solutions are very savvy, but we have no, I suppose, idea as to how supported or how trusted that particular app or solution may be. So I think in terms of kind of keeping those solutions appealing, you need to make sure that you can rely on trusted sources. And there are great ones in Ireland. Um, Spun Out have a service through their own, I suppose that's linked to their service called 50808. Mm-hmm. 
And all of their, I suppose, counsellors and text counsellors are trained in LGBT awareness, LGBT inclusion, and also fully trained in safeguarding and everything else they need in terms of actual responsiveness. So I suppose you want to make sure that you're working with a service that is fully verified, whether it's private or public, whether it's in the charity sector or elsewhere. You want to make sure that you can access those credentials. And hopefully young people in particular can be empowered to know what those credentials look like in the first place. Of course. And what about yourself, Greg, just on that same topic? I think for me, yeah, like having it be evidence-based as well is, it's, it's hugely important because otherwise it's just bad information. And we live in an age of bad information, misinformation, and disinformation. So to be able to go to a trusted source is, is crucial. Like there's, there's enough. The internet is, is kind of a wild west anyway. The, uh, the phone is the medium through which we take in everything. We take in talking to our families. We go on Instagram. We all, all of these different things. And it's difficult not to trust that if it's the single source through which you're getting most of your interactions or a lot of your interactions with the world. So, the, yeah, there's there's an inherent danger to being given bad information, particularly when it comes to something like mental health. Um, there is obviously a limitation within that medium of what kind of mental health resource you can access. Like, obviously, CBT um, is one that can be delivered through that because it's it's a rule book. It's like there's a rule book or a playbook um, within it, but it doesn't mean that it's the be all and end all. It doesn't mean that it's going to answer absolutely everything that you that you need. And to look at the phone and to look at the online resource as the as a single point of contact for your mental health is uh, is limiting. I think it's important to, to acknowledge that. And I think that's really important, that support element, because at Silvercloud, we really do believe that, the, you know, having a clinician or a supporter or a coach in the loop with people, um, very important in normalizing their journey, making them feel like there's someone there with them. And, you know, there's all, who is the AI at the end of my phone? You know, it's it's the thing about making sure that that person is emphasized because psychological therapies and supporting people go hand in hand. So you're exp- you, you have experience with CBT. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, when uh, my initial experience with, um, with therapy and similar to what we were talking about earlier about the, like, the, the speed dating or the Tinder dating of, of, uh, of therapy, like, I think I ended up working with maybe four therapists before I settled on, on one that I felt was, uh, there, was a, there was a connection. Um, initially, the modality was CBT for the first, I think, six months or year. Um, I thought for where I was, for like that state of need and that, and that kind of crisis point, CBT was really, really helpful. It, it helped me, helped take me from a place of really, really high anxiety and like, you know, fundamental, um, just alert mode mm. constantly for, for a period of time and got me to a place where I could look at it critically and engage with it further. So would you say that you, to this day, you still engage in the skills that CBT would have taught you or? Yeah, definitely. Like in the moment, like moments of anxiety or like, you know, heightened awareness or fight or flight response, things like that. When when I need them, they're there. Um, it's not really the modality that I work with with my regular therapist now. Um, but to have it and know know that there even even just the awareness of its of its availability is is kind of fifty percent of what it can do for you. Of course. And like we know from just it's a good access point into services because even though a digital solution may not be as with anything you go to a gp you get a referral you go somewhere else you get a referral somewhere else that's how healthcare tends to work until you eventually tackle um tackle the cause but with cbt online cbt specifically like silver cloud uh it's useful in the sense that it's a good entry point 
into services. Um, if some, it's even a way to get people who wouldn't normally engage with the services in the door. So for example, I mentioned my socially anxious brain standing outside that door. It's a big red door in the middle of Limerick City, Ireland, and there's a bell. It's a big brass bell and you press the bell and a man comes on the intercom at the opposite end. My socially anxious brain, the first time I went to that building, it said, run, look at all these people on the street. They are, they're, they're judging you. And if I was any more severe on that spectrum, uh, I think I would have run. So for those people who can't even bring themselves to that big red front door or to sit, I'm lucky that there's no waiting room in that service. It's just you go in, you go into your therapy room. For people who have to sit in waiting rooms, Silver Cloud can be really useful to engage them at that point so that you can bring them to the waiting room because that's half the battle, right? You know how many, I think the normal DNA rate, did, did not attend rate for services is like 40, 45%. So talking about access, that's a way to engage people that may not have otherwise been engaged. And Ruan, when we talk about the LGBT community and we talk about the trans community and when we talk about, you know, trans men, men in that community, access waiting lists must be massive. ICBT, Internet Delivered CBT, useful way in reducing those sorts of waiting lists or at least to support them while they're on that waiting list. Where do you see something like Silver Cloud or even digital therapy as a concept, where do you see it fitting into men's mental health in that sphere? I suppose it's something that should be available to everybody who needs it um, as they're navigating those waiting lists and as they're navigating the gaps in the system. Um, it should be something that, I suppose, even beyond being available to someone who is on a waiting list or somebody who's waiting to access healthcare, it should be available in tandem with their healthcare. They shouldn't be on the waiting list in the first place. Exactly. The waiting lists in Ireland are completely out of hand. And the waiting lists in Ireland aren't so much for therapy or mental health care when it comes to the trans community. It's for general transition care, which will, it's, we've got the data that tells us it will improve your mental health and it will reduce those awful statistics around mental health for the trans community. For the trans community in Ireland, our biggest issue is accessing transition-related health care, particularly when it comes to referrals for surgeons, anything through the National Gender Service. We know that being able to access medical transition does improve the mental health outcomes for trans and non-binary people. But in Ireland, the system doesn't currently support that. The waiting lists in the UK are also huge. So the first thing that we need is for that system to be fixed. Mm -hmm. And then we need all of those other solutions available to people as they're trying to approach their healthcare in a holistic way. It should be delivered and it should be, I suppose, guided by the person who is closest to that individual, whether it's their GP or their therapist. Um, but it should be done in a way that is local, accessible, safe and free um, and not in a way that is particularly challenging to access or takes so long to access. Um, and it's not just unique to the trans and non-binary community, but I think it should be a point of solidarity mm -hmm. for everyone who's on a waiting list of any kind mm -hmm. um, that we all deserve better when it comes to our healthcare. So we spoke a little bit about stigma and we touched on it a little bit and in regards to the stigma of accessing therapy as a man. For men in the trans and the, you know, the, the gay community, does that stigma look a little bit different to, and can you tell me a little bit about how you perceive that? Yes, the best, I suppose, resource for understanding LGBT mental health in Ireland is the LGBT Ireland report from 2016. That's actually being renewed and will hopefully be, we'll have new results around those statistics and around that research in the coming year or so. 
um, the survey went out again last year. But the LGBT Ireland report told us that the single biggest indicator for negative outcomes later on in life when it comes to mental health or addiction or issues in employment was school bullying and was early childhood experiences and negative experience in schooling. Same is true for people who are not LGBT+. Those early experiences will shape your life later on, um, as will other factors like child poverty. But for LGBT young people, it's that universal experience of, or almost universal experience of school bullying which can be the biggest predicator for shame and stigma and issues that you face later on in life. There's some great writing around this topic, particularly, I think, for gay and bisexual men. Um, there's a great book called Straight Jacket by Matthew Todd, which looks at how shame and stigma around sexuality for queer men in their adolescence and growing up has really direct impacts when it comes to things like alcohol and substance use. For the queer community, most of our community spaces are bars and nightclubs. That's a huge issue. That's something that... Lots of groups are working to solve. There's lots of LGBT sports clubs and cultural clubs. But again, we just don't have access to the same landscape maybe that the general community has. So it's a systemic issue and it's something that I suppose we all need to do a bit of self-examination around. Um, but also an issue in terms of, I suppose, how we think about LGBT socialization and LGBT supports and peer support uh, and making sure that people can access them confidently and without any self-consciousness or insecurity. I know, and I'd agree there around, you know, as a gay man, the majority of my 20s was spent socialising in, in bars and nightclubs and there was nothing else. And I didn't think of it as anything else. But I think it's so, like now being in my 30s and being a little bit more grounded and settled and I've moved, I, I've moved city. So my partner has recently, you know, joined a, a gay rugby club. Uh, and excuse me, it's not gay, it's inclusive in that there's everyone joins, they play tag rugby and it's amazing. And it provides an outlet. It allows you to meet pe a lot of different people and it gives you a community. And community, I think, is so, so important, not just for the, the LGBTQ community, it's for important for the, you know, the, the heterosexual community too. And thinking all those things, like, I think a, a really, really great initiative that isn't celebrated enough is the idea of men's sheds. Mm -hmm. um, it's they're primarily targeted at you know men over the age of fifty because men don't talk. That's what they do. But you know, I find it really interesting when my father would ever come home from work, and he'd be you'd get little tidbits about other people out of him. And I was like, you never really talk to people about this stuff. And he'd be like, ah, sure, we were we were breaking rocks, and we found that out. But it's a way to engage people and create community and allow them to talk. And when we think of the awareness of mental health care and taking stigma and the impact that masculinity can have, where do we, how do we make people more aware? How do we make men more aware of the supports that are available to them, considering all of these pressures that are pushing down on them in society? Ron? I mean, I think education is the single biggest opportunity and one of the bigger issues that we have in this space. Um, when we look at like health disparities in general, a lot of the time we see those health disparities, I think, particularly impacting younger and older generations. Mm. Um, for younger generations, it's because they don't have the adverse or positive life experience to know how they should be looking after their physical or mental health. Mm -hmm. And for older generations, it's because that education and that visibility was never on the table for them. So I think it needs to be something that is embedded within education and something that's signposted throughout a person's education. I suppose the risk factors for poor mental health, the risk factors for your friends when somebody might be in need of health, help or support or signposting to help or support. 
Um, it should be something that's available to teaching professionals in schools, but also something that's available to individuals themselves. Um, peer support, again, really wary of kind of leaning on it too heavily, mm -hmm. um, but even just as a means for understanding your own risks, your own risk factors and your own kind of red flags or trigger points. Mm -hmm. um, things like recognizing when you or a friend may be drinking too heavily or when you and a fr or a friend may be leaning into negative coping, coping mechanisms, what those look like for yourself and how you can, I suppose, admit to them um, and what they look like in friends too. Because I think that by seeing and intervening and supporting friends, you'll begin to learn how to support yourself as well. So I think, you know, it's really interesting just hearing that because 90% of all of our referrals come through GPs. Mm. And, you know, we when we think about Silvercloud and the reach and, you know, I often like to call it the great myth of digital health and that a lot of research purports that digital interventions increase access, but very few studies report on actually how they increase access. And we're seeing that in our data now about we're actually getting that access data on a routine basis. And you see some of those stats coming out of places like Australia and Canada too. But in thinking about the messaging that GPs or even refers to Silvercloud could include when speaking to patients. So for example, we spoke about previously where Someone may come in for, oh, my legs are sore, my back is sore, but that could be a somatic representation of something that's going on deeper. So how do you, you've spoken about education, but Greg, I'd, be, I'd really be interested to hear your thoughts as well around how do we meet GPs and empower them or empower referrers to get people into mental health care services or get them into digital care? Um, it's not a space that I'm fully um, experienced with as well. So like, I guess... <clears throat> How much education and awareness are we giving to GPs about this space? How much resource are we giving them to effectively introduce someone to the digital platform? Um, yeah, what are, what are the conversations that are being had? And like we already touched on it, it's um, a GP may not have the additional time required in between 20 minutes that they have. So, um, you know, they have 20 minutes for the patient. It's like, and also men are quite reticent to even talk. Like I know myself, you know, saying that I'm I'm open to having these conversations, but when I go into my GP, I'm rarely thinking, oh, I'm going to talk about my mental health here. Of course, yeah. you know. So it's kind of you're going in in this structured way to say, okay, like I need a prescription for an inhaler. Great, chest isn't great. We listen to the respiratory thing and out the door, and that's kind of thing. So it's uh, yeah, it feels like you don't have the amount of time to even go deep or have that conversation with the GP. Yeah, I think that's really important because it's about help supporting GPs to understand the nuances that are there. That when somebody says, I have back pain, it's it may not be, you know, because I haven't lifted anything heavy, I don't know what's going on. Maybe there might be something deeper going on there and then empowering them in ways to monitor and identify those things. Thank you very much, Ruan. Thank you, Greg, for joining us here today on this special edition of our CB Talks podcast. For our viewers out there and our listeners, this has been a special edition that was video recorded today in, in the Silver Club by Amwell offices. I'd encourage everyone to go back and have a look at our previous episodes where we speak to clinicians and experts in the field of digital health about all current topics, research and industry best practices. So thank you very much.